Runoff, a crime novel about election fraud, evokes a curious timelessness of classic detective fiction. A noir gem, says Mystery Scene Magazine. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 30 Lady Psychiatrist Booth Chris was a member of a car-sharing cooperative that allowed members to rent cars by the hour, picking them up and dropping them off from pods in their neighborhood. Chris had selected a green Toyota hybrid with the collective's logo on the side in big yellow letters, and the fact that the car was so conspicuous and that he insisted upon driving didn't do a great deal to aid my digestion. I felt a stromboli rising as he asked, Where are we going? To South Park. I told Cassia, the girl who was with Roadrunner, to stay at an SRO there. I'm hoping she took the advice and can tell us where to find him. Apparently, they hooked up for at least one night, so she must know where he lives, or squats. In San Francisco, South Park isn't a rude cartoon made with paper cutouts. It's a south-of-market neighborhood that has seen more than its share of ups and downs. In the late 1800s, the Oval Park at its center had been ringed with the houses of the city's elite, but the 1906 earthquake and fire had leveled all that. After it was rebuilt, it became home to a motley collection of warehouses, machine shops, sleazy hotels and bars. Then came the dot-com bubble and burst, pitching the neighborhood through another cycle of prosperity and decline. It has since recovered to some extent, but none of the fancy restaurants and venture capitalists from the dot-com era have returned and the SRO hotel I'd recommended to Cassia, the Parkview, while less unsavory than most, was not exactly pulling the neighborhood up. Chris insisted on creeping along Van Ness until he got to market, so it took us the better part of half an hour to get to the park. We found a spot by the curb that ringed the oval of grass, eucalyptus trees, and playground equipment, and wedged the car in between a beater pickup full of recycled cardboard and a late-model BMW. It was the perfect microcosm of the neighborhood. The hotel was on the far side of the park, but as we cut across the dewy grass, I spotted a pair of dark figures lounging on a swing set just beyond a circle of light thrown by a street lamp. The taller figure was more rumpled-looking and had a bandana wrapped around his head, so it peaked like the Pope's hat. He was smoking a cigarette, and as he took a drag, the orange glow from the butt illuminated a scraggly beard and a nose like a new potato. The other figure was more slight, was sporting a cowboy hat, and just at that moment had his or her head tipped back to drink from a bottle wrapped in a paper bag. I caught the camo pattern on her sleeve, and I knew it was Cassia. I called her name. She brought the bottle down with an audible slosh and raised her hand against the glare from the street lamp. Who's that? We stepped closer. It's your old pal Ovaltine. The dude from the garage. What's Ovaltine got to do with it? 
Isn't that some kind of laxative? Chris and the guy in the swing laughed. Before your time, I said, forget I mentioned it. We wanted to talk to you privately. Cassie exchanged glances with the bearded Pope. He said, don't talk to them if you don't want to, sweetheart. It's okay, Walt. He's my, what you call, benefactor. She passed the bottle over. I'll see you back at the hotel. Maybe we can play another game of canasta. Walt lurched out of the swing and would have done a faceplant if I hadn't caught him under the arms. Thanks, man, he mumbled. Just knock on my door when you're ready, Cassia. He shuffled off into the night, coughing like a Soviet tank starting up. Cassia grabbed the chains of the swing above her head in a maneuver that was vaguely exhibitionist. So who's your friend? His name is Chris. Well, Mr. Ovaltine, my earlier offer still stands, but I'm not into three ways. Chris emitted a kind of strangled gasp. I sincerely hope you're talking about light bulbs. What's with him? Another vote against three ways. But we didn't come for that. We came to ask more questions about Roadrunner. Cassia let go of the chains. That jerk off again? That's the one. Have you seen him since the garage? Yeah, he helped me source some stuff in a locker at the bus station when we first got together. He was waiting for me when I went to retrieve it. What did he want? He wanted to know what happened after he disappeared down the fire escape. He wanted to convince me to go back to the building to squat. To which you replied? She laughed and hooked her thumbs under the arms of her beater t-shirt. I told him to go fuck himself that I was now a proud resident of the Parkview Hotel. As for what happened after he left, I told him you bought me a cheeseburger. You didn't mention the paper rolls we found in the grill? Hell no. I wasn't sure I believed that, but it didn't really matter. Look, Cassia, we're trying to find him. I was hoping you could tell us where he lives. I only stayed with him the one night. He had a basement room in a house near that penis tower thing. Coit Tower put in Chris. Yeah, whatever. It was dark when we got there, and I don't think I could find my way back. Do you remember a street name? I asked. No, I wasn't paying attention. And man, we did all kinds of twists and turns to get there. The only street I remember was Columbus. That's way down at the bottom of the hill in North Beach. Yeah, we were having a drink or three at the bar there, and then we walked up to his house. How about the name of the bar? Cassia took her cowboy hat off and dropped it into her lap. She ran her hand over the streak of dark hair. I don't remember the name, but I remember the booth we sat in. It had a little sign over it that said, Booth for Lady Psychiatrist. Roadrunner said it was his favorite place to drink because women always come up and try to psychoanalyze him. That's Vesuvio. Is that a hangout of his? Seems like. The bartenders all knew him, and he also told me a favorite writer of his drank there. That would be Kerouac. Okay, Cassia, that helps. Can you think of anything else that would give us a handle on him? I know where he works. Works? I didn't put Roadrunner in the 9 to 5 category. Ha, you're right about that, man. It's more of a volunteer thing. He told me he helps out at the Bicycle Advisory Committee. 
That rang a faint bell for me, but I couldn't place it. What the hell's that? You got me. A bunch of people making suggestions about bike lanes and shit. I wouldn't think anarchists would stay inside the lanes. No, and he told me he doesn't even own a bike. Okay, I think we'll have to go with the Vesuvio lead. Thank you again. She smiled up at me. Thanks are appreciated, but I could sure use a little something more to keep me in cheeseburgers. I spent the first installment like you told me. I'm prepaid for four nights at the Parkview, but that didn't leave much for food. Especially after going in on the Mogan David. She giggled. <laughs> that was Walt's mad dog. I was just having a little nip to be sociable. I brought out my wallet to extract another hundred. I also took out a business card and a pen and scratched Chris's cell phone number on the back. I dropped a card and the money into Cassia's hat. There you go. Give me a call at the number on the back of the card if you see Roadrunner again. Don't use the other numbers because they don't work. And go easy on the mad dog. Alcohol can't be good for you. No worries there, rasped a voice out of the darkness. I'll monitor her consumption. Walt shuffled back into view, a yellow-toothed grin opening a ragged gap in his beard. Sorry to eavesdrop, but what kind of friend would I be if I abandoned her to you two? A fair question, Walt, I said. A fair question. December had been dry so far, but about five minutes after we got back to the car, it began to rain. Hard. Vesuvio was smack dab in the middle of North Beach, and with the rain, the hubbub for the 8 p.m. show of Beach Blanket Babylon at Club Fugazi, and the generally impossible parking situation, there was no legal place to put the Toyota for blocks. It was also not lost on me that the Wilmot's death house, as the TV news called it, was less than half a block away, and it wasn't the brightest idea in the world for me to be endlessly circling the neighborhood like a lost dog or a manic killer. I finally directed Chris to pull the car up Jack Kerouac Alley, which ran between Vesuvio and City Lights, the publisher and bookstore that first printed beat poet Allen Ginsberg's Howl. It was illegal to park anywhere along Kerouac, which left plenty of space for us and made it possible to pull almost right up to the door. Chris switched off the Toyota. Over the sound of the rain drumming on the roof, he said, What's the plan, boss? Go in and look for him. What else? Maybe I should do it. I'm not wanted by the city and county of San Francisco. True, but you don't know what he looks like, and I doubt you can inspire the same forthrightness that I can. Just keep the battery warm, or whatever it is you keep warm on these wind-up cars, and be ready to go if I come running out. He reached over to touch my arm. Okay, but promise me you'll go easy. You've been doing too much punching, chopping, shooting, and generally butch stuff lately. In fact, here's a little Broadway theater exercise to get in touch with your feminine side before you go. Complete this phrase. Little orphan, Annie, get your gun. See you, Chris. I jumped out of the car and ran over to the Roman mosaic that spelled out the name of the bar beneath the overhang by the door. Inside, it was warm and muggy. The water from the patrons' coats and umbrellas 
steaming up the place like an orchid hothouse. Roadrunner was nowhere to be seen downstairs. I elbowed my way up to the bar to get a pint of anchor steam, taking in the artifacts on the wall behind. A black cat with glowing electric eyes and a W.C. Fields quote about thanking the woman who drove him to drink, while a barmaid with fantastic gelled bangs like fins from a prehistoric fish poured the beer. I paid and took the beer up a narrow staircase to the second floor, which wasn't much more than a wide balcony overlooking the floor below. There were tables along the balcony railings, windows that looked out on Kerouac Alley in Columbus, and two booths, one near the landing of the stairs and another, the one for lady psychiatrists, across the way near the front of the building. Neither of the booths was occupied, and the only other person upstairs was a nerdy guy reading a book. I walked along the railing to a table just past the second booth and sat down facing the windows that looked out onto Columbus. Anyone approaching the booth would get a hopefully unrecognizable view of my backside, while I would see his or her reflection in the window. But once someone sat down, the booth wall would prevent either party from observing the other, even though we would only be a few feet apart. I sipped my beer and shuffled a stack of coasters while the rain caromed off the window like thrown pebbles and no one new came up to the second floor. I was down to suds and backwash at the 30-minute mark and had given up shuffling to flip the coasters into the chair across the table. At 45, I'd lost all the coasters to wild flips and was wrestling with the decision to go downstairs for another beer. On the one hand, I didn't want to risk having to confront Roadrunner downstairs, but on the other, I wanted the beer and I figured it wouldn't hurt to check in with Chris. The reflection of a muskrat fur hat, rising over the staircase banister, decided for me. Roadrunner stepped onto the landing in his full Great White North regalia, juggling two pint glasses of beer and a Boilermaker shot. I hunkered down at my table to make myself less conspicuous, but I needn't have bothered. He walked over to the booth with a jaunty and supremely self-absorbed gait, and with much clinking of glass and kicking of wooden benches, ensconced himself therein. The glasses of beer interested me. Maybe he knew from experience that there was no table service upstairs and had come well stocked, but maybe a friend was joining him. I decided to wait before bracing him. The wait paid off almost immediately when I heard someone else on the staircase, and I caught sight of Diego, the kid who had dry-gulched me at the Ciudad Verde demonstration. I watched him in the window as he sauntered across the checkerboard linoleum, shaking the rain from his baseball cap as he came. His eyes slid across at the back of my head without recognition, and he stepped into the booth without exchanging a word of greeting with Roadrunner. Then, over the sound of the ambient bar chatter, he spat. What the hell is this, pendejo? Beer! It's Coors, isn't it? I told you the last time I don't drink that shit. Roadrunner said something I couldn't hear, and then Diego said, What? I said I'm sorry. Never mind. Are you ready for tomorrow? Yes, as long as they haven't changed the network. Why would they? No special reason. But with all this craziness going on, they might have done an audit or something. I doubt it. And if I were you, I wouldn't mention it again. 
There was a longish pause. I assumed Diego was taking a drink of the beer he didn't want. Can I ask you a question? said Roadrunner finally. I guess. Just hurry the fuck up. The talk at 13th Street is that Kathleen and Caleb were killed in bed having sex. So? So I remember you were joking that she probably buggered him up the ass. Yeah. Whatever Roadrunner said was too soft or inarticulate for me to catch. Diego came back strong. That's another thing you shouldn't mention again. I figured this was my cue. I stood from the table and took a quick step around the corner to face the booth. Roadrunner was sitting in the back, cringing like he was expecting a blow. Diego sat on the outside, but was leaning inward in a menacing way. As Roadrunner caught sight of me, puzzlement and then shock flickered across his face like bad acting in a silent movie. Diego jerked around to see what he was reacting to. I tapped the sign above the booth. Evening, ladies. Diego made a move to stand. I mashed down his shoulder and flicked open my jacket. The butt of the Glock peeped out. I think maybe you've seen this before. I reloaded it. It's got all 15 in the magazine, and it still works. Fuck you. Given what I just learned about you, Diego, I'm going to take that threat seriously. In fact, Roadrunner, step out of the booth. I think you and I need to find someplace a little less hostile to talk. Me? Yes, you. Don't do it, hissed Diego. Roadrunner froze. He opened his mouth, but no words came out. He just managed to take hold of the edge of the table and squeeze. I pulled the Glock from his holster and held it down by my side. Everything is unraveling, Roadrunner. Diego's going to ride the needle at San Quentin. You are too, unless you do something to separate yourself from him and Wood. And me, I'm desperate. I don't have anything else to lose at this point. I'll shoot you both, right now if I have to. Most of what I said was bullshit, but Roadrunner didn't know that. He looked at Diego, and then he looked at me. He unlatched himself from the table and started to slide in my direction. Diego got agitated and would have reached across to stop him, but for the up-close and personal experience I gave him with the muzzle of the Glock. Roadrunner was going slower than poured Play-Doh. I nearly had him at the edge of the booth when I felt a tap on my shoulder. It was my turn to act surprised. Wood stood behind me with an open cell phone to his ear. Yes, I'm right here, he said. Please hurry. He may even be armed. He put his hand over the speaker. Would you like to talk to the cops, Reardon? I realized I should have paid more attention to the whiskey shot. I hesitated only an instant, then slapped the cell phone out of his hand. I strode down the stairs, reholstering the Glock as I went. I giant stepped down them two at a time. A siren started very loud and very close, and by the time I reached the bottom, a cruiser had screeched to a stop in front of Chris's Toyota. A female officer jumped out and ran to the door. I rushed forward to meet her. She entered the bar in high color, water spotting her glasses. Are you looking for Reardon? I asked. She nodded curtly. He's upstairs in the john. Okay, thanks. Please stay here. I nodded, but as soon as she went past, slipped out and ran to the Toyota. 
I jerked open the door to find Chris in a state that Frannick didn't even begin to describe. He gestured wildly at the cruiser. Police, he mouthed. I dove onto the seat and slammed the door closed. Skip the closed captioning. Just get the hell out of here. For all the mute hysteria, Chris responded like a champ. He shoved the gear shift into reverse, and we crawfished out of the alley onto Grant. He shot down Grant to Broadway, where he flung the car left through an amber light, and 60 seconds later, we were in the Broadway tunnel, heading for the far side of Russian Hill. You have been listening to Runoff, a book hard-boiled great James Crumley described as a smart, funny, spooky, often touching, always entertaining romp. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.